Welcome to the weekly podcast from thebusinessofpleasure.com, a cross-sector forum dedicated to exploring and exploiting the shared borders between entertainment, culture, and travel. I'm not a robot is probably one of the most frequently repeated statements in The Business of Pleasure, the ultimate box-ticking exercise in response to our ticketing website's attempts to prevent bots from gobbling up inventory on behalf of unauthorised resellers. But is it more human or more robotic to simply hit that tick without giving the question a bit more thought? How are we different? What makes us unique? What are the contrasting ways in which we approach questions and situations? And, more crucially, how did our understanding of human intelligence shape the development of artificial intelligence? We'll start with human intelligence, because we were here first. Human intelligence. The timing of capture in the late 1990s was more than a little ironic. The early completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart, arrived on the scene slightly ahead of the scientific breakthrough that revolutionised our understanding of how we humans interact with the world. Although long anticipated by philosophy, it was a single piece of research published in 1999 that brought about this change. To quote one leading scientist on the subject, In the 20th century... We thought the brain extracted everything it needed to know from its sensations, the standard sandwich model of stimulus-cognition-response. Whereas in the 21st century, the brain became an organ for inference, constructing explanations for resolving uncertainty about what's going on out there. The predictive brain. The particular type of inference that this organ relies on is called abductive inference. Nothing to do with kidnapping, as I assumed when I read it. It's probably best described by contrasting it with other forms of inference. With deductive inference, things are pretty cut and dried. All bears are mammals. All mammals have lungs. If both statements are true, we can deduce that all bears have lungs. Inductive inference, however, involves making assumptions based on limited knowledge, such as generalizations from small samples. The red-headed people I know frequently wear powder blue sweaters. Therefore, all red-headed people frequently wear powder blue sweaters. Or statistical inductive reasoning. Since 95% of UK redheads frequently wear powder blue sweaters, redheads around the world frequently wear powder blue sweaters. Causal inference. In the third week of June, there were inbound tourists in London. Therefore, next year, the third week of June will bring inbound tourists to London. Analogical inductive reasoning. Jack and Jill are redheads and frequently wear powder blue sweaters. Sarah is also a redhead. Therefore, Sarah also frequently wears powder blue sweaters. Predictive inductive reasoning. In the past, inbound tourists have always started coming to London in the third week of June. Therefore, next year, 
inbound tourists will come to London from the third week of June. Abductive inference Abductive inference is a subspecies of inductive reasoning that makes assumptions or predictions based on the understanding of the evidence to hand, which, in turn, is based on previous experience of similar or analogous situations. Examples of abductive inference include a doctor making a diagnosis based on test results and a jury using evidence to pass judgment on a case. In both scenarios, there is not a 100% guarantee of correctness, just the best guess based on available evidence. The difference between abductive reasoning and inductive reasoning is a subtle one. Both use evidence to form guesses that are likely, but not guaranteed. However, abductive reasoning looks for cause-and-effect relationships, while induction seeks to determine general rules. Artificial Intelligence – A Short History of Neural Networks Towards the end of the Second World War, scientists attempted to explain activity in the neurons, our body's processes and cabling, in terms of what they then understood about electricity and how this might enable the creation of simple networks that could process information mathematically. In doing this, they were consciously building on the work of the German mathematician philosopher and computer pioneer Gottfried Leibniz, 1646-1716, who had shown that any task which can be described completely and unambiguously in a finite number of words can be done by a logic machine. This approach culminated in 1943 with McCulloch and Pitt's landmark paper a logical calculus of ideas immanent in nervous activity. To illustrate the type of advance this thinking led to, the late 50s and early 60s saw the development of two working models, or machines, Adeline, adaptive linear element, and Madeline, multiple adaptive linear elements, for the purpose of illustrating adaptive behaviour and artificial learning. This Learning, put very simply, reduces the average number of wrong predictions by minimising the average number of errors. Examples of input and desired output are fed into the system in a step-by-step -step manner, and as the experience accrues, the system's competence accrues too. The more examples, the better the performance, i.e. it is an iterative process that allows changes towards ever better performance over time only it turned out that learning was not quite so simple. In the early 1970s, scientists working on the way we humans learn noted how this particular version of error-corrective learning was subject to bias, because initially learned connections can subsequently block those that follow. In short, very short, they concluded as we covered in our podcast on surprise, that we only learn when we're well, surprised. Back to the machines. It was the business of pleasure that, purely by accident, fueled the next series of leaps in artificial intelligence. We've now reached the 1980s, and the tsunami of demand for increasingly sophisticated computer gaming led to the development of ever faster computers. The scientific community immediately took advantage of this greatly increased computing power to continue their work, teaching 
artificial intelligence how to draw and drive and execute basic business admin functions. The 1990s saw a further period of acceleration, but with a twist. The machine's masters started to throw down the gauntlet and challenge humans to compete with their creations. Some of it was playful stuff. In 1994, the World Drafts champion, Tinsley, was forced to resign a match against the Chinook programme. In 1997, the World Chess champion, Garry Kasparov, was defeated by IBM's Deep Blue. But the machines weren't just making moves across the chess and checkerboards. Pretty soon, autonomous and semi-autonomous cars were driving across Europe and America, and robots were boldly going where no man could go before along the floors of oceans, across vast frozen wastes of Antarctica, and all over the internet, as spiders for search engines. In fact, the question became, is there anywhere they can't go? To answer this, let's go back to those words of Leibniz. Any task which can be described completely and unambiguously in a finite number of words can be done by a logic machine. To put that another way... A couple of years ago, I listened to a radio programme on how technology, in the form of bridges, had disrupted the livelihoods of the worshipful company of watermen, established in 1514, who held the monopoly for ferrying passengers across the Thames. This change was contrasted with the more recent disruptive threat that Uber presented to licensed London black cab drivers, and the programme concluded with the CEO of a leading AI company being asked, and I paraphrase, so... What careers advice should parents give their children to help them avoid being replaced by machines? The AI CEO thought about this for a few seconds before replying, If your children have a burning vocation to become something like a doctor or lawyer or engineer, indulge them in their passion, but make sure they have something more solid to fall back on, like music, acting or dance, because those are the only things the machine can't do. Only the line is not quite so clear-cut as they made it out to be. As I learnt at a seminar at Stationers Hall, the home of the worshipful company of stationers and newspaper makers founded in 1403. Here, among the stained-glass windows depicting legendary disruptors Johannes Gutenberg and William Caxton, we learned how robots were already replacing cub journalists in writing up sports reports, and listen to chapters of novels written by digital wizards replicating the writing style of J.K. Rowling. In fact, how do you know that this podcast isn't written and read by machines? You don't answer that. Now, the prospect of robot invasion will doubtless strike fear into the hearts of many within the business of pleasure. But that's the wrong way to look at it. As one recent scientific paper puts it, for the time being... AI systems will have fundamentally different cognitive qualities and abilities than biological systems. For this reason, a most prominent issue is how we can use and collaborate with these systems as effectively as possible. And here's a topical for instance. Like many other areas of life, most sectors of the business of pleasure have been disrupted by the COVID pandemic and its aftershocks. Our audiences are displaying new behaviours reflecting changing priorities, and therefore our understanding of these audiences has to be rapidly recalibrated time after time, and our product lines, and how we communicate them, need to be updated accordingly. 
And while AI will not provide the silver bullet, it is incredibly useful and fast at detecting changes in moving targets. A final caveat to our audience. At the time of writing, there is no generally accepted definition of artificial intelligence. Part of the problem is that most definitions, like this blog, attempt to define it by contrasting it with human intelligence, which is itself being constantly redefined as we, with the help of our machines, learn more about ourselves. One paper written in 2009 probably sums it up succinctly thus. In line with this, AI is, then, defined as the study of how to make computers do things at which, at the moment, people are better. But no matter how useful robots may be in serving the business of pleasure, or damaging it as ticket-buying bots, they will never, ever become members of our audience. And perhaps that, ultimately, will be the final and solitary defining difference. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to hear or read more on these subjects or contribute to our forum, please visit www.thebusinessofpleasure.com.